Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Fresh from the Hill, inside stories of noteworthy Cornelians. I'm your host, Camila Salazar, class of 2016. Today's guest is Dawn Camucci, an award-winning writer and director from Buffalo, New York. In 2007, she graduated cum laude from Cornell University with a degree in film studies and Africana studies, and she later went on to USC's prestigious MFA film production program. She's known for her work on HBO's Sharp Objects and Freeform's Cloak and Dagger, and most recently completed work on Disney Plus's The Falcon and the Winter Soldier. Welcome to the show, Don. Thank you for having me. This is really exciting. It's extremely exciting uh, for me as well as listeners to my kind of mini series on this podcast know, as someone with a production background, I have been kind of geared towards people in the entertainment industry, production industries as well. So I'm very excited to speak with you today. Um, So you attended Cornell in the mid 2000s. Can you tell us about your experience there? You know, your favorite extracurriculars, maybe a favorite library. I had a great time. I love it. And uh, whenever anybody is like, you know, I'm going to college, where should I go? I'm always like, go to Cornell. It was amazing Um, because it was like isolated and secluded like you really bonded with the people uh, that you went to school mm-hmm. with and that you shared a dorm with. Um, it was its own little community on a hill and I loved it. Um, I didn't really have extracurricular activities. I worked, I it was in the work study program. So I, I did two jobs. I worked at Cornell Dining. So I was, uh, I lived in Risley. And uh, so I was the stir fry girl. And so I guess you could call that my extracurricular activity. <laughs> I was known as I the stir fry girl. And everybody was like, oh my God, is the stir fry girl working today? And if I wasn't, they're like, uh, no, we don't want it today. Um, and then I also worked at uh, Cornell Cinema, and uh, which was at uh, Willard Street Hall. I started off as a box officer and then I did concessions and then I became a house manager. And I did, and so I did both of those jobs for about three and a half years. So I was too busy, you know, studying and working to actually like do anything else. But you know, and I, yeah. I hung out with like a lot of people at uh, who lived in Risley. So we just we were kind of like a really fun, close knit group. Yeah, I mean, you had not only two jobs but also two degrees. So I can see why that took up all of your time. Um, speaking of the dual degree, can you tell us a little bit about your decision to attain both of those degrees and what your favorite part from each one was? Mm-hmm. Um, so I, when I was 16, I knew I wanted to work in film. I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I wanted to do something. And so I applied to all of these film schools and I didn't get accepted to any of them, but I knew that Cornell had a film program. So I was like, okay, I want to do film because I want to like go on and become a director or become a writer. I didn't know what I wanted to do. I just was like, I want to know more about that. Um, and then also uh, my dad, uh, he, he's passed away. He passed away when I was seven. Um, but he was from Kenya and it was like before the internet, like you're still writing letters back and forth and email was just like getting off the ground. And, uh, so I didn't know that much about my heritage. Um, and I, I wanted to feel closer to him and I kind of did it as like an homage to honor him. Um, so I wanted to learn as much as I could about um, Africa and the diaspora. And through that, I got to know him. But I also got to know my African-American culture as well. My mom is Black, um, but she was 
she never really taught us that much about African-American history and the schools that I went to didn't teach me that much about African-American history. So I'm like, more than anything, I am grateful for that, uh, that program because I like the stories that I tell now, the information and knowledge that I impart to my younger nieces and nephews and the kids around me. And I think even in the political climate that we live in now, like I think that that has opened up my eyes more than anything and shown me what this world really is like and what you have to do to persevere and the stories that you have to pass down. So I'm like, more than anything, when anybody is like, oh my God, I want to go into film. I'm like, okay, but what else are you studying? Because you can't just be a filmmaker. You can't just regurgitate the same stories that you've already, you know, already watched. Like, what can you tell? What can you bring to the world? Um, because I think it's our responsibility as filmmakers to, to be knowledgeable of what we're bringing in, because we have a very powerful voice. And, um, and that's what I always said about the program is that like, uh, film studies was about the aesthetics of something, whereas Africana studies is about like, what is the impact of those aesthetics? Like, how can they actually, how can visuals, how can skin color, how can the way you talk, the way you look, the way that you are portrayed in media affect your life? And so I think like those two degrees were wonderful to have in tandem because it made me hyper aware of like, sort of like the the, the mirror and like the the image and the reciprocal image and how they can go hand in hand and how they can affect and like be amplified to tell more powerful stories. So that's, that's what I studied and, and I, I, I wouldn't change it for the world. So do you feel like your Cornell degrees helped you in your career in, you know, like a tangible way? Like did they set you up really well for success? And if so, how, and if not, how could they have, how could Cornell have better set you up for success? I think they definitely set me up for success. Um, I mean, the stories that I want to tell, that I will tell, I think when I helm a show, probably will have more of a foundation in sort of pan-African stories or themes. Um, I haven't been able to do that yet. Um, but when it comes to knowing, you know, African-American history, like I'm usually like I have been hired in a lot of rooms because, you know, I'm going to be honest and say it because I'm a black girl. And, you know, if they need history of some kind, they know that they can come to me. Um, and so that's been very helpful. And I think if I didn't have that foundation, if I didn't have Africana studies, I wouldn't be able to speak expertly about sort of the African-American experience because I would kind of be be lost yeah. in a way. Um, for my film degree, I learned a lot of... Uh, studies it was film it was film studies um when i when i ended up going to usc later they they divide film studies into two which is uh film production and um critical studies and i realized that what i got from uh cornell was critical studies it was purely like the analysis of 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 movies and as a director, it was helpful because it allowed me to analyze story and to like to really be critical about what is on the screen and be able to to like to analyze it like, oh, is it the production design? Is it the cinematography? Oh, what is this wide angle lens telling me about the story? But it wasn't helpful on a practical level when I was trying to think of like, okay, how do I make a film? Um, I took, I maybe I think I took about three production classes. I took all the production classes that were offered, but um, but there were, it was very small. So when I finally went to USC, I was like, oh my God, my head is reeling because like, it's a whole new world. And like, 
there's so much more to learn about production. So I like to say that like Cornell prepared me and gave me like sort of kind of gave me the skills and then USC honed me. Um, and, and, and it allowed me to tell sharper stories. And honestly, I mean, not to toot my own horn or anything. I do think that when I got to USC, my earlier films were better than the other people in my class. And I think it was because I had the Cornell experience because I had those three production classes under my belt. Um, but it, it was like, but like USC is a boot camp, so that you, you basically, once you get to the second or third year, you're kind of all on, on par, but it did make for like, you know, pretty boring the first two semesters because I was like, Oh, I know this stuff already. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's interesting. I think I took some of those production courses at Cornell and I think I remember thinking like, Oh, I wish there was more, but the more is the grad school. It sounds like. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, at USC, you could be a film production major and come out with a great reel mm-hmm. and be ready to, uh, like to make films and like turn out great stuff. I don't think that's the case at Cornell. Yeah. Um, but you know, I mean, it would be nice if, if that were something that could change. Uh, I think I, I was talking to Sabine, um, Hinney, who I love. She was one of my favorite professors at Cornell. Um, and it seems like they are going to be adding more production classes to their roster. So like Amazing. fingers crossed the next generation will be able to come out with a reel and able to go straight to Hollywood and, and sell themselves as, you know, future writers and directors. Amazing. I hope that happens sooner rather than later. Um, so you graduated from Cornell in 2007 when the country was not just on the brink of financial collapse, but also on the brink of like the infamous writer's strike of 08. Um, how did these events affect you and your early career trajectory, if at all? You know, obviously in the moment of graduating, you can't see the future, but this happened pretty, this all happened pretty shortly after you you graduated, so. It was really rough. I mean, that's a great question because I was so debilitated like uh, and depressed. Um, I had a lot of friends who were able to go either straight into grad school or they had jobs, like good jobs. And I was like unemployed and I was just like, oh my God, like, you know, I was, I was told you get a degree, you walk into a great job and your life is set. And like, you know, I felt like society had made so many promises and that it just wasn't coming to pass. And I also felt like I was, um, I kind of took it internally. I thought it was me. I thought I wasn't good enough. And it like, we didn't really know as a society, like, even though we were in it, I don't think we really knew at least like the lay person that we were in like a huge, a great, like a great recession until maybe 2008, 2009. And then I was able to look back and be like, Oh, that's why I couldn't find a job. But when I graduated, I truly thought that it was just, it was me. I thought I didn't have the skills. I thought I wasn't prepared. And I was confused because they were like, go to an Ivy League, they said, you'll get a great job, your future would be set. And it wasn't. Um, but I think it was it was good preparation because when I graduated from USC, I had the same situation where like friends either went and got another degree or they, they also were having a hard time finding jobs at this point too. Like, I think most of my formative years were during the recession. And so we were, we like older millennials were really caught in that crunch where it was impossible to get a job. Yet you had these massive student loans hanging over your head. And, and if you weren't able to delay them by going to grad school, then you were pretty screwed. Um, so that was, that was really, it was really, really hard. 
Um, but I think it's good preparation for my career where it's like, you never know where the next job is coming from. And to, to realize that it's not you, it's not your self-worth. Like don't place your self-worth in your, um, in your job, your job title. Um, and like, who's paying you, it has to be to find that in from within, because I would have been, I, I, I would have been destroyed if I, if I had said like, oh, I don't have a six figure job right now. What's wrong with me? And I know a lot of friends were going through that. Um, but also during that time, my grandmother was really sick. And so I, um, when I realized I couldn't get into any grad schools and I wasn't finding any work, I ended up going to Buffalo um, and taking care of my grandma for a little bit. And during that time, I like randomly sent off an application to USC and I wanted to apply again to Columbia and all these other film schools. And I didn't, I just didn't have time because I was busy taking care of her. Um, and like, I just forgot about it. And then like four months later, I get this call from USC being like, hey, you coming or what? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And they're like, you got in. And I'm like, I got into where? I don't know what you're talking about. I've been in here in Buffalo in my own little like secluded, like, <laughs> like camp with my grandma. And they were like, well, you got in, you got to put the down payment down and like by like Friday. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. I guess I'm going to USC then. And, <laughs> but it was, I, I discovered more about who I was and like during that time, during that little bubble. Um, hearing you talk about USC and how obviously it was great for you in your career. I just, I actually wasn't playing on, on asking you about this, but a kind of, and also hearing you talk about thinking about applying to Columbia's program, it got me thinking about this thread that I saw um, on Twitter. I think it like only a few days ago written by James Stottero, I think. I'm not sure how you pronounce his name, but he's, his, I mean, his Twitter, Twitter bio says writer, exec, producer, Batwoman, you know, formerly Gotham, Crypto and Vampire Diaries, Switched at Birth, um, and kind of just like roasting Columbia's MFA film program, basically calling it a scam. Um, I'm not sure, have, are you familiar with this or? or no, I'm not familiar okay, with I'll it. I'll give you the summary. Long story short, he didn't feel like, the program set their students up for success. They traded on um, student streams. Uh, like a lot of the faculty were people who were also struggling in like stalled out careers. And then also um, he actually never graduated. He was like two credits short. He got like a writing gig kind of fortuitously near the end of his time in the program. And he wanted to finish those last two credits while he was in LA, Columbia refused. So he never got his degree. Fast forward several years, he's like a successful writer or a working writer in Hollywood. They ask him to speak at an alumni event. He says, sure, but I'm actually not an alumni. They're like, we can we can fix that for you. And then it turns out that the chair of the program was basically like, we'll graduate you if you help me get my pilot sold or something like that. And so he ends it with like, long story short, I still don't have my degree. And just kind of like... Yeah, just kind of roasting Columbia for this. Do you feel like that's something that you see very often in a lot of MFA programs? Do you think it might be just weirdly unique to Columbia? Like, how do you feel about, you know, this idea of film school being, in some people's eyes, a scam? Okay. First off, if you're going to go to film school, think long and hard because you're like, I'm now... I have hundreds of thousand dollars worth of debt that I am not able to pay off. And I've been working for five years. Yeah. Um, would I have been able to do my current career without having gone to USC? Probably not. Yeah. 
um, a, a great, like a professor of mine, um, he read a script that I co-wrote with my writing partner and like he had the connections and he made it possible. Like it was one step in front of the other. People really liked it. And we ended up getting repped off of it and getting jobs. So like I did not have the connections to, um, to get me to my current job. Um, but there are people that I do know, they know people in Hollywood or they are already working at a very low level in Hollywood. Should they quit their jobs and go to USC or another film school? No, absolutely not. Just keep doing what you're doing. Like if anything, I actually, I've heard with my very own ears, executives say, oh, like they're looking at resumes and they're like, oh, this person went to USC. I'm not hiring them. And it was because they like, they felt like, either that person had too much knowledge or they wouldn't work hard. But like, if anything, like when I'm looking, meeting executives and I Googled them, all of those executives, they don't have grad school knowledge. Like they went to like random schools around the country and like studied English or communications. So becoming like, becoming successful in Hollywood, like it doesn't require a master's degree from a film school or even an undergrad degree from a film school. Um, But the skills that I learned, like if me and five of my friends were going to go off and make a movie, we could do it tomorrow because Mm -hmm. of the skills we learned from USC. But whether or not that will actually give us a leg up and help us to sell ourselves and actually sell our film and get our movie made or financed, no. So it's it's a catch-22. And a lot of my friends that I know are not like maybe 20% of us are working Okay. Uh, from my USC program, like who are actually working and getting paid like 20% and the degrees were 60,000 a year. Mm. So I think there's something wrong with the numbers. I think that these film programs need to revamp and look at how many people they're actually accepting and try and find, like if I'm paying if I'm paying $60,000 a year to get into your program, you should have like guaranteed um, like internships or something with yeah. major companies that become a leg through the door. If not, I have my iPhone. I have, you know, I have final draft. I have like some sort of editing program on my computer. I don't need you. So that's why I'm saying like, you need to think long and hard before you you decide whether or not to go to film school because like for, I know a person who moved to Alaska and works at a Starbucks and he has the same loans that I do. Will he be able to pay it back? I don't think so. And I, and if you're asking me, is it a racket? Is it a scam? Then I would say yes, because I don't think that's acceptable. Yeah. I just want to say thank you for your candor. I really appreciate the honesty that you just gave us. Um, it's always, refreshing to hear a take that is probably not especially coming from someone who is a success story from usc you know so thank you speaking of you know going through film school and leaving usc i read that after you graduated you moved back to the east coast to maryland um not the place where people typically move to when they're trying to break into hollywood and i was wondering how did you manage to break into the industry from you know a home base that isn't the stereotypical for um, the entertainment industry? Well, I'm happy that you asked this question right after you've asked your previous question because they are hand in hand. Like I graduated from USC and I had no job prospects. I applied 
to hundreds of jobs. I had a log. <laughs> I did not, could not get hired in a mail room anywhere. It was like, it was impossible for me to work. And that is the problem that you have, you know, $350,000 in student loans. And now you can't even get a job in a mail room or at a Starbucks. And how are you going to support yourself? And the thing is, is that my friends and I, as like who are working, we have started working within the last maybe five years, four or five years. But like, what about those six years after graduation? How are we supposed to support ourselves then? And the thing is, is that, you know, you have either a parent uh, who, who can support you, who can patronize you, or you have family who can give you money, or you can like, you've already had a previous career, which is what's happened with a lot of my friends. They had a previous career and they went back to that previous career and they wrote on the side or they did something else on the side. And then now things are bubbling up and they're successful and they're working. But like the reason I went home to Maryland was because my mom was a teacher and she's like, I cannot support you anymore. She was like, I can pay your rent up to the month of June and then you got to come back home. And my writing partner and I, we weren't writing partners and we were just, you know, friends. We were going on hikes and uh, we'd tell each other stories. And so we ended up telling each other this one story that we loved. And we were like, oh my God, this is really good. We should write this down. And so we wrote it down and then we wrote the script and we were like, this is good. We can't just stick it in a drawer. What are we going to do with it? And so we had a hit list of like a hundred people that we thought like could potentially do something with it. Either they were working as an assistant or they were a professor that we had or in an internship that we had to find for ourselves and then pay through the wazoo for credits. Um, they like, we, we met them. And so we were like, okay, we know, like collectively we know this many people, let's send them out. And so we sent it out to, I'm not lying, I think a hundred people. And this was the same time we were applying for jobs and we were also hearing no. Um, so there was a lot of applying that happened during this time. Um, and so we ended up getting two responses. One was from a friend of ours who was a, uh, an intern at a production company that had a show on the air. And she was like, oh, here's some notes. And we're like, oh God, we don't want notes. We want to actually make this. And then the second one was from our professor who we always thought didn't like us, but it turned out he did. <laughs> um, but he was like, um, he was like, this is, he got back to us. Well, you know what I sent it to, no. So we only heard back from one person. And then I randomly bumped into the professor at an elevator and I was like, Oh, Hey, how are you doing? He's like, how are you doing? And I was like, Oh, did you? And he was like, Oh, you know, I got your script. I don't have time to read it. I have so many scripts on my, on my plate and they're all along. And I was like, well, mine is only 55 pages. And he was like 55 pages. I'll read that tonight. And then he got back to us like the very next day and was like, this is amazing. Is it connected to the school in any way? I really think that this could be something. And so like out of the 100 people we sent it to, one person got back and thought it could be something. And then we ended up, um, he ended up giving us notes. And, um, and so we were working on that. But meanwhile, the clock is still ticking because my mom is like, you got to come home in June. So the clock like ran out and I went home to Maryland. My writing partner was still in LA. At this time, she got an, her internship and ended up turning into a job. Um, and um, but it was like as a as an assistant. So I, we we did the rewrite that he wanted. He liked it, and then he started passing it around to his friends, to his contacts. 
And so he was like, um, okay, so you have to like meet with this person. You have to meet with that person. And I was in, I moved back to Maryland and I was super depressed because I felt like my career was over. And honestly it was. And if it wasn't for my writing partner who was able to stay in Los Angeles because of the patronage of her mother, as I like to call it, um, then I wouldn't have been able to have a career. Like she was able to attend the meetings and then she would bring me on like uh, Google Hangouts. And so I would meet the people that way or she'd put me on speakerphone. And so I was able to attend the meetings virtually. And this was like in 2012, 2013. Right. So this is like way before the pandemic. You know, Skype is, is and, and Zoom is like, are like old hats for my writing partner now because yeah. we've been doing it for like a decade. Um, but she would take me to all the meetings virtually. And like that is, and then finally we reached a point where they were like, okay, a lot of people like this, you know, uh, some like A-list celebrities like this come to LA. Like you don't need to leave your substitute teaching job that you're doing, that you're getting paid a hundred dollars a day and come to Los Angeles and not get paid at all to take a round of meetings. And so I did it. I stayed at like the skeeziest Airbnb you've ever seen. It was like $7 a night. It was very creepy. Um, and like, I couldn't work for like a month. Well, no, actually it wasn't two weeks. It was a month. And we were taking all these meetings and eventually we ended up landing some reps and then they were like, okay, great. Now you have to take even more meetings. And I was like, I can't stay here. I have to go back home. So I went back home and they were like, okay, well, we're going to set more meetings for you in January. Can you do this? I was like, yes. And so it just became like rounds of that. I would come out to LA for like commuting. Yeah. I would come out like um, uh, every quarter or, you know, twice a year, depending on like uh, what meetings they had. And I would go and I'd, um, and I'd meet and like things each time we came, like there was progress. But like, it, those were also times where I couldn't work. And it was like, my mom was like, I was living in my, in my, uh, in my old bedroom. And it was just, it was, it was really, really hard. And like, as if I didn't have my writing partner, it would not have been possible. So like, was that a choice? No, but I do tell people, Hey, if you have to go back home, that's not the end. Like I was so depressed when I was, when I was home um, during that period, because I was just like, I'm a failure. I have these huge student loans. I can't pay them back. I'm working as a substitute teacher. This is not the life that I've envisioned for myself. Mm -hmm. And so now when I encounter friends who are still in the similar boat, who graduated in the same year I did, and who are now like, because of the pandemic forced to go home, I'm like, this is not the end. Like you just still keep pressing keep doing what you're doing. Don't give up. Like, cause it's the end when you stop creating. Yeah. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what happened to that script, the script that landed you, you know, the mm -hmm. reps, the one that kind of got you through the door with all these meetings. What, what happened to that story? It's dormant right now. I mean, my writing partner and I still hope that it'll get made someday, but I don't think it's the time for it. It was, mm -hmm. um, it was an upstairs downstairs, um, set in a plantation five years before the civil war. Gotcha. And so I think that there is a, an exhaustion, a, a slave fatigue. And I think that that's right. I think now is the time for like black and brown joy. Um, and so I'm happy for it to be like dormant. Maybe it'll come back around. Like, you know, it seems like every 20 years there's like a new, like there's a reawakening, or, or new desire, appetite for like slave material and plantation material. And I think that's right so that we don't forget the past, but I also think we need to counterbalance it with, uh, you know, not just black pain, but black joy. Um, and so I'm okay with letting that just sleep for now. And then maybe later, like if it had gotten made, 
it would have been, we wouldn't have had control over it because we were, it was our first project. Mm -hmm. There would have been somebody else who was either show running it and we would be like, like producing it at some level. Uh, but we wouldn't have had control. But I think now if we were to get it made, we would have control. Um, so that went dormant, but it's still our sample. People still read it. Like literally we got a job. I mean, we got a, a job interview two weeks ago based on that pilot. And they were like, this is perfect. We want to bring this, the, this, like this writing, this, like it, it had a, it had a hint of, um, because it was upstairs and downstairs. We took a, a, um, a really interesting take on it where we wanted to look at sort of what is the everyday life of people who are living, in, who are enslaved. Um, so it wasn't purely like 12 years of slave. It wasn't unrelenting you know, beatings and rapes. Like that was part of it, mm -hmm. but that wasn't the everyday because there's no way that a, an audience could watch that sustained for 10 hours. Yeah. Um, and so because of that, it relied on family drama. It relied on sort of like, what does it mean to be enslaved? Like what are the small um, insults and micro and, and aggressions that you have to deal with every, every day? Um, and so that's what we looked at there and using those, um, those elements, there are, it's very relatable to other scripts and other projects that are currently um, in production. And so we, we ended up getting um, a, a job interview on it and hopefully fingers crossed we'll get the job. But, yeah. <laughs> um, but it was, it's, so even though the project itself is dormant, it's still working for us. It's still like, we have made more money off of that project as a sample um, than we would have if it had actually gotten made when we were first starting. So I have no complaints. Amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, you know, you just mentioned how if it had been made in the moment, you wouldn't really have that much control. You'd be a producer. But mm -hmm. can you tell us a little bit about the, I guess, the differences in roles you've had? Like, you know, your IMDb, you have a range mm -hmm. of credits. You have... I saw executive story editor, I saw producer, you know, there's director here and there. Mm -hmm. um, can you kind of tell us a little bit about the difference in roles that mm -hmm. you've had and also maybe like chronologically, right? So like how, yeah. you know, as you've gotten more successful or, you know, how that's, I guess, a differentiation between all those roles for all of us on the outside. Um, well, if you look at uh, my IMDb, you'll think I'm very schizophrenic and can't choose one thing. But the thing is, is that in writing, um, if you are a writer in Hollywood, those are a TV writer in Hollywood, to be exact. Those are the ranks mm. of climbing up the system. So you start off okay. as a staff writer. Um, okay. Then you become a story editor. Then you become an executive story editor. Then a co-producer, supervising producer co-executive producer and then uh executive producer so like the, so even though it's spazzy it's not like that that just shows that I've been working this whole time yeah I never realized that that was the because I that's that was the question right I was like I know that you are a writer and a producer and then I think also in Hollywood and tv and film you know producer is so vague and it can mean so many things like I know for example for me in, in podcasting producer can be vague but it, it's someone who does who can do everything behind the scenes, like everyone who does anything behind the scenes, they're a producer. And then each different show delineates what that means for that show. Whereas I see these credits and I'm like, well, what is the difference between a producer and a staff and like a, and a co-producer or 
So mm-hmm. now we know they're yeah. all writers. <laughs> yes, amazing. Well, well in, in television specifically, there are in few, television. there are a few producers in TV who are non-writing producers. Um, and okay. it's hard to st- distinguish them, uh, but you'll notice that they don't have a writing credit. Like you'll see like, oh, they don't have an episode. Like like if you go to the producing section, you'll see that they produced on the show, then click on the writing section. Oh, did they have a writing credit uh, attributed to them? No. Okay, so then they were non-writing. Although in the pandemic, uh, it's gotten hard because a lot of shows have been stalled out, then retooled. Mm-hmm. And because of, the, and then like a whole new set of writers will come in and rewrite. So I actually have a couple of producing credits that are like very recent that I don't have a writing credit attached to. And that's because the season was thrown out because either, you know, new, um, uh, a new sort of like um, regime has come in into the network or the studio and like, just like retooled everything. And because of that, I'm like, at least I have the producer credit. People are going to think that I'm like, you know, just doing around, like just collecting a paycheck. I, I wasn't, I wrote an episode. It just didn't end up getting <laughs> produced, unfortunately. But hopefully yeah. when the pandemic is over and sort of the, the schedule and timetable returns, the normal timetable returns, like we'll go back to like getting, you know, both the producer credit and the writer credit. Yeah. And so again, based on the mm-hmm. description of the ranks that you just shared with us, it seems like you've climbed the ranks mm-hmm. fairly quickly. How can you kind of describe how often you were, you know, promoted, so to speak. Yeah. And I know, you know, as a freelancer, I know it's it's not like someone's actually handing you a promotion. People just kind of take a chance on you, mm-hmm. like based on your prior experience. So like how was that experience of climbing up for mm-hmm. you? You know, like how long did it take? Which projects were the ones that you think really catapulted you up mm-hmm. for the next level? Things like that. Well, um, so my writing partner and I are a team, which means it's dirty secret we get paid or we used to get paid less than everybody else in the room because they're considered to be one person. So you split a a salary. Um, Because of that, we were cheap. And because of that, we worked more because we had to, A, Mm -hmm. because LA is very expensive and B, because people were like, oh, these are really good, talented writers and they cost what, half? So I get two writers for the cost of one. So that meant we were always moving and people like I'll bump into somebody today that I met like, you know, two or three years ago, or I I knew two or three years ago. And they'll be like, wait, you're what? How how did you do that? And I'm like, you have been on hiatus for the past two years. I have not, I cannot afford to be on hiatus. Like you've been booked and busy. Yeah, I exactly. So like that mentality of being like, oh, you know, I like, my mom is not around to support me. I still like, it's still true today as it was when I was after Cornell and after USC. So I have to like pay my bills, which means I cannot sit around and on my laurels. So as soon as my writing partner and I are done, we are usually immediately taking staffing meetings to, to get on the next show. So what happened was like the longest hiatus we've ever had was, uh, was like six months. And that's usually for most writers, that's, that's like the shortest hiatus that they usually have. Um, and so in the past six years, um, it's been um, normally like we've averaged like two jobs a year. And that that's not usually the case. We've also been on a lot of short order shows. So those are shows where like it's it's either a mini series or like in two shows that we ended up being on, like it got canceled before it even aired. So <laughs> by that point we were already like on to like the next job. So we just move yeah. really like, because financially we have to, we just move really fast. And so the biggest breaks that we had, uh, so A, you know, getting staffed by Julie Pleck, like 
as a staff writer, that's the biggest hurdle. Getting like getting staff for their first time is always the biggest hurdle. The second biggest hurdle is getting staff. The second so what time. was that one? What project was the first one? That was containment. It was on the CW, containment. Uh, which was about a viral outbreak in Atlanta. And, oh. <laughs> and I <laughs> wish people had seen it because I feel like if they had, they would have been more prepared for this pandemic uh, because it was about like the city. It was based off a Belgian series. And uh, there's like this virus that escapes uh, uh, like a lab. And so in order to protect the rest of the country, uh, the CDC comes in and they put containers around the like the neighborhood to prevent people from getting out. So it's like this microcosm of people who have to wear masks and stay six feet away from each other and people go crazy. And there's a point where like the military has to come in and put down a riot. And we thought we were writing fantasy. We were like sitting up there being like, this is never gonna happen. Cut to five years later, there's a riot. You manifested it. <laughs> we it's did. all your fault. We did. I think I do. <laughs> I think I might have special powers because I've like a lot of the shows I've written on, those things soon happen a little after. And I'm like, oh my God, this is crazy. <laughs> um, and then the lovely tangent, um, which was from me interrupting you, uh, she wanted to circle back about yeah. like your big breaks, your first staffing yeah. is always the hardest. Mm-hmm. And then what would you say after that? I say the second break is, is the second hardest. Like, so okay. like, Going from staff writer to story editor is really hard for a lot of writers because there's like, usually you're supposed to do staff writer once, maybe twice, but there are some instances where uh, you, where people get stuck in staff writer and they do it a couple of times. I've known people who've done it three or four times and that is despicable. Um, And because like those people also make a lot significantly less than everybody else, but they have as much experience. Like if you've done staff writer four times, you should technically be at co-producer level, which is mid-level. Um, and so like, it's not always guaranteed that you'll get a bump, but I had a really great boss on Hand of God named Ben. And he was like, he looked at us and he was like, yeah, you only did one round of staff writer, but I'm not going to make you do it again. I'm going to promote you guys. And because of that, we've been steadily climbing through the ranks. So we've got really lucky and fortunate on our first two jobs. And because of that, we've just been rolling along. Um, and we've only been forced to repeat a, um, level once. But in that level, we actually managed because we'd done the level for 16 episodes on one show and then 10 episodes on the next. By the time we got to our the job following it, we ended up skipping two levels because we were like, we did wow. producer level. So why are we doing it again? So it was yeah. it, it didn't really deter us that much. That's really interesting. So is there some sort of bottleneck that emerges? You know, like if all these people kind of like they're, you know, if you climb up, climb up the ranks, like there can only be so many ranks at the top. Do you find that is, I, I'm like imagining this in my head. Do you find that there's like bottleneck as you go up or no, there's usually just enough jobs? The bottleneck would be at the staff and the, the staff writer, the uh, executive producer and the co-executive producer. Once you like get out of that bottleneck, I think there's more room to breathe. The thing is, is that that's okay. a trap. And as a person of color, I would warn other people of color like that. That is where young writers of color, their careers go to die because what do you, because people don't promote them. Um, it's hard. Oh, right. Like the people that I know who've done those like uh, staff writer positions three or four times, they're not white men. They are yeah. usually black women um, or, you know, women of color. And, and, and that, that's where the bottleneck is. It's like, if you can oh, hurdle right. out of that, if you can get to co-producer and you just keep working, keep your head down, like you can, you will have a good career. And I think 
now that there are like, you know, more channels than there've ever been more shows than ever. Like, I think there's more space to breathe, but like, it's getting that first job and then that second job and then the third job that like, once you get that third job, then you can be like, Oh, I think I, I think I have something here. Um, so if you're asking for a bottleneck, that's where it is. And it's really unfortunate. And, um, it's just, you know, keep working, keep your head down, be nice to everybody in the room. Cause you never know who's going to be responsible for hiring for the next show. And hopefully they'll think of you, um, and, uh, the passion came along. Great. Um, amazing advice for the future, uh, TV writers listening to this right now. Um, and then speaking of all of these different projects you've been on, I would love to know what your favorite project you've ever worked on is. Mm. My go-to answer is sharp objects. Usually. I mean, why wouldn't it be? I know it's, it's, it's wonderful. <laughs> like uh, Marty Noxon and Gillian Flynn were absolutely amazing. Um, they like, they took a chance on us. They were actually the third project we got on. And they also were like, no, you guys are executive story editors. And we learned so much. Um, and like the room was really tiny and it was done during 2016 Olympics. And so it was ridiculous. We would go to work and then they'd be like, oh Yeah. Russia is playing, you know, Switzerland today. I got to get home. <laughs> just go home <laughs> early. We work for like two hours. And like, that's when you realize like when you're making, like you don't have to kill yourself. You don't have to put in 12 hour days. And then up to that point, my writing partner and I, we were like pushing ourselves and doing like ridiculous hours. Like we would work like a 12 hour day would be a short day. Um, and then when yeah. we got on that show, we were like, A, we're making a quality, like an A production, A level production on HBO. Like, and they are only putting in two or three hours uh, on like certain days. Like, don't get me wrong, we did work, but like, why, why yeah. are we working? Like, why are we killing ourselves? And that changed our yeah. paradigm completely. Yeah, I've definitely noticed whenever there's kind of like a global, um, like sporting event like that, it always helps to remind me, like, oh, this idea of like you need to work like work needs to come first or like you need to you know dedicate all this stuff for to your job your career that's just like fake news Mm -hmm. I mean I remember one of my first full-time gigs in 2018 was also when the world cup was and both before and after that I felt like constantly plagued by deadlines and I feel like I didn't work at all during the world cup and I felt like no one I worked at BuzzFeed and I felt like no one worked the entire time and I was like wait a minute how did like the deadlines all just like stop being that important for two months like it just didn't mm-hmm. I, it was just so silly and it's like you can always always have more time to breathe but well, you know. I, I think that's the case of the pandemic it's also teaching us that deadlines are arbitrary that the work that you're doing probably doesn't matter in the face of like you know mass extinction like I, I yep. <laughs> it's just like you should be with your family right now like why are you putting in why are we doing eight hour days like if you yeah. can't do it in four, then it doesn't need to be done until tomorrow. And like, that is, yeah. that's my, <laughs> that's my new, my new motto. Like, I just, I, I think that like, we have been overworking ourselves and maybe we should look more at like the French model of doing things. And like, I always say that I'm yeah. always like the French have got it right. Yes, they do. And we, thousand percent. Why are we working ourselves to death for people who won't even remember us after we're dead? Like you should be spending yeah. time with your family and your loved ones. I love that. Can I add one more thing? I also, yeah, so of course. I also was working on a show called uh, Painkiller. Hasn't come out yet. Uh, Uzo Aduba and Matthew Broderick are supposed to star in it. And they're just oh, shooting wow. it now. Like we started this in November of 2019. And it, because of the oh, pandemic, wow. it got postponed. But like, that was my second 
No, I think they, they like, I think Sharp Objects and Painkiller are tied neck and neck between like projects that I love. And that was another project where it was about the humanity of the people working there. And our two bosses, they were the writers of A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood and they were utterly fantastic. Like they just, they cared for us as humans, as people. And as you know, our lives were all like going up in flames. They would take time out in the morning to just do an hour check-in with everybody. We would all sit around and they'd be like, how are you doing today? How are you dealing with this? And it just was so reassuring to have bosses who care about like care just who cared period and so I just I learned like I think from sharp objects it was about like you don't need to work that hard and then from uh painkiller it was like when you become a boss or like not even the boss when you climb up in the ranks it's your job to like not just like you know crack a whip it's your job to care about the people who you're working with and actually you know like foster their talent helps set them up for success it's not, it's not just that, which, cause I, that's also my, that's, that's just like me and who I am. I always want to like lift as I rise as a person, but like, I, it was like to genuinely care about the people that you work for, like to almost love yeah. them. That feels a bit much, but like, just to be like, to care <laughs> on emotional and mental level, yeah. to check in and see how are you doing? Are you able to cope? Mm-hmm. And if maybe if the work is too much, maybe we need to like scale it back. Reassess. Yeah. And just like, yeah. cause it's like, obviously you're here because we know you're talented. So that's not the problem. Mm-hmm. What the problem is, yeah. is like, are you able to cope with what's happening? And if not, then let's yeah. talk about it and let's see if I can help you. And just having that mindset and seeing them be great leaders was, I think, a valuable and invaluable lesson for me. First off, again, that's beautiful. I think I've also, when I reflect on my personal career, the the jobs and teams and bosses who I've have the most fondness for and who I also think have shaped me and have helped me be like the success that I am now have all been people who cared like I've had my fair share of bosses who really just treated me like you know another cog in the machine Mm -hmm. and I think the difference it it makes all the world in the difference when people just care and they want you to be Mm -hmm. good and like thrive in the environment. So that's really great that that's, it sounds like, I feel like when people think of Hollywood, they don't think of that. They mm-hmm. think of like the cog in the machine scenario. So it's really nice and refreshing to hear that that's becoming more and more common. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming, but. It's a rarity. That's why I think it's one it's of my rarity, favorite jobs. But, yeah. but I, w- yeah. I would say like, be careful if you are sitting in a job interview and somebody is coming on way too strong emotionally and they're like oh we care oh we're family oh this is like all love here run Red flag. And they run in the opposite direction because that means that that person does not have boundaries so what i'm talking about yeah. isn't just like you know virtue signaling it's not just saying like oh look at how great we are oh we're family oh you know like that's not what i'm talking i'm talking about somebody who has met, like who has sat with you, has like talked to you, who's like actually here to hold your hand and not just, and not just use your emotional attachment to them to get what they want, to get you working 18 hours a day, because there are people who will do that. Yeah. I'm so glad you brought that up because when you, I was, I was about to bring this up when you said, I love them. Well, that's coming out too strong. And I was like, okay, well she kind of, because I found that too. It's like, when people or companies kind of give the mantra or idea that like you're a family, you know, it's, it's like cultish. Like it, mm-hmm. it's, you know, it, you're a family to them until they need to trim the fat and lay off, you know, a hundred people at once, 200 people at once. Yeah. yeah. That's a very real thing I'm referencing just now, but mm-hmm. it's, you should never ever, there should always be clear boundaries between work and your personal life. 
And that doesn't mean that you can't like the people you work for or you can't really care about them, but that you cannot be equal to your family. They I cannot. Agree. It cannot. And if people are saying that, run. Because <laughs> that just means that they want, they're trying to exploit you emotionally. So. Yeah. And they don't have yeah. clear boundaries in their own lives with their own families, yeah. and which means they're going to like then look for you to do the things that their wives or their friends should be doing. And that's not your job because you have your yeah. own distinctive life. Yeah. I'm so glad that we covered that because that is one of the biggest things that I tell um, young people who want to go into media or entertainment. I'm always like, be very wary of like the personal work life boundaries. Um, but anyway, to get back to a more, uh, another fun question, I was wondering, do you have a dream project that you would love to make or write, you know, where pie in the sky, all the stars are aligned and you, you were chosen to bring this story to life in the way that you want to, no restrictions, no budget, your dream, your dream project or story. I do have one. Um, I can't go into detail about it because I actually have a meeting about it today and I hope that it actually, uh, it gets made, but it is, it's, it's deep period. It's black joy. It's black royalty. It's black everything. (laughs) Um, Amazing. um, A teaser. Yeah. And it's just, it's, it, my problem with Hollywood is that when they're like, okay, we're going to do, we're going to deal with like, you know, black characters in history. It's either the civil rights movement or it's the antebellum era. And I'm like, there's Mm -hmm. so much more history than that. And I want to like examine, you know, I want to look at Africa. And I think this is because of my, uh, my Africana degree where it's like, I learned so much about African history. I'm like, how come we're not mining these stories? Like we can tell stories about ancient Greece or Rome all day long and no one has a problem. But as soon as we want to travel like 500 miles South, they're like, oh God, no, we can't do that. Um, and I want to, I want to, I want to like explore Egypt as, you know, black Egypt, not just, you know, Elizabeth Taylor, white Egypt. Um, I want to go even south than that. I want to see West Africa, like the glories of Mansa Musa. I want to see, I, I want to see, you know, beautiful black people, not enslaved or in pain. I want to see them, you know, as Kings and Queens. And that's, that's what my project is. Um, and I, it's also, there's romance thrown in it's, and, uh, and hopefully in my dream project, there would also be musical numbers, not like, <laughs> not like singing in the rain, but like, it's, it's, it, there will be a lot of music involved in it, um, because the, yeah. the protagonist is, is a musician. Um, so if I had all the money in the world, I would, I would make a project like that. Okay, great. Well, Don, thank you so much for joining me. This has been incredibly fun and I can't wait to see what you make next. And I really hope that this dream project gets made. Please let us know uh, if it does and we'll be on the lookout for it. Thank you. Thank you very much. I had a great time. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Fresh from the Hill. Music for Fresh from the Hill was created by Kia Albertson Rogers, class of 2013. You can contact him at koa3 at cornell.edu. For more information about Cornell Young Alumni Programs and how to stay involved, please visit alumni.cornell.edu slash youngalumni or visit our Facebook page at Cornell Young Alumni Programs.